That was part two of our uh, uh, video series that we've called Making Room um, as we get ready for uh, some of the transitions here at FBN. And so uh, please take note. Uh, we want you to join a group if you're not part of a group. Uh, also, play, uh, please take note. We, we see um, the discomfort that this may cause uh, some of us, and, and change brings that. It always does. Uh, but we're trusting the Lord together through that, and uh, we want to just invite you into the opportunity that this could be for you, for your family, uh, to join us in groups, to, uh, to kind of re-up as we uh, look next week at this idea of serving, and uh, just, just really, uh, to just really draw your family into, into deeper community um, with people here. I always say if you can find community with a few, then you can find it with a lot. Um, and some of the people who feel most at home at FBN aren't the people who know everybody, but they're the people who have found rich, deep, few <laughs> connections and, uh, and community. And so please, please take us up on this offer. Uh, you can sign up back there um, on just those, those uh, sheets of paper and express your interest in groups. And then also uh, to remind you, next week we have kind of our dress rehearsal, as we've been calling it. Uh, we're going to have three services um, and uh, we're, we're going to uh, take, uh, take a leave from uh, the, uh, the class hour that happens on Sunday mornings. We're going to have three services. And so please, please pay attention to that schedule and uh, um, join us in that effort. And so, uh, listen, we're here. Um, we're going to jump into the Word today. I want to thank Zach and Maggie for leading us in worship and your team, Nick, and, uh, and the other Zach. We have a lot of Zachs on our worship team. Um, thank you guys for doing that. Uh, Brandon and Grace are here. Uh, we have this rotation among our pastors here where every once in a while, one of our families will get to just take what we call just a family worship Sunday. And so they were able to just come in with their family like normal people today. And so we're glad for you guys to have that experience. Last time they tried this, one of the kids was sick, and so it just Backfired, but uh, it's good to see you guys. It's just part of the room today, and thank you for uh, your ministry and everything you guys do here. So let's have a word of prayer, and we're going to jump into Mark chapter 1 together. Our God, thank you so much for this time that we have together. We're grateful for your word, for your provision, for your great kindness and goodness to us that we don't deserve, not even a little bit. As Zach said, God, uh, uh, you came and you offered everything, and we have nothing to offer back. God, we pray um, that, that our obedience and our love for you would be, uh, would be a, a pleasing sacrifice to you because of all that you've done for us. God, I pray that you would use Mark 1 today to draw us into richer uh, uh, living for you in faith and obedience and in righteousness. Um, God, as you use another sermon, uh, one very similar to many that we hear often, God, would you use it in a unique way, all to the praise and glory of Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to be in Mark chapter 1 today looking at a longer passage, I would say, uh, verses 29 through 38, and we'll jump into that, but just kind of set it up a little bit. Um, I have this love-hate uh, relationship uh, with road trips, um, and I shared this with the first service, and I found out that I actually have a lot of irrational fears, <laughs> so it's more of like a, a love-fear relationship with, with road trips. Like, I love the conversations, I love being together, I love good music, I love gas stops where I can just load up on snacks and drinks. I love stopping for dinner and lunch. Really anything with food. I, I'm a big fan of that part. Um, all of it. It's pretty fun. I'm not too intimidated of the roads, but there are just a few things that intimidate me uh, about travel, um, and they're, they're, they're fearful. Uh, and the first one is just trying to figure out how to park into a parking garage in the city. I don't know what it is, but like I can't tell which lane is the entrance and which is the exit. 
I know there's arrows and there's signs and stuff, but for whatever reason, when I pull up, I just freeze. And so I'll drive around the congested block like four times until I just know for certain that I'm not going to pull into the exit and cause this big jam. And you can ask Kenzie. It's one of the, the leading frustrations of our marriage is that exact thing. Um, no kidding. And so I'm working on it. It's irrational. I understand. There's another thing that frustrates me about travel. Um, it's less the... Um, it's less fearful. It's more of an annoyance. You know, it's like when you go to a family reunion and you have to have like this road trip download. There's usually a person there, usually an older guy there, who's just like, so what direction did you come in from? Did you take Highway 36 or 34? You know, did you hit the traffic on I-69? And I'll, I'll smile through it, but inside I'm just like, who cares? <laughs> Nobody cares. When did traffic become like a fascinating conversation topic? Google Maps told me where to go, and that's where I went. And I got here faster than you did, so you should probably try that. Try just, like, not caring, and you might get there faster. But the other fear that I have is that of toll roads. Um, I, I don't know if anybody else has this fear. I haven't driven one on one in years and years and years because I'm always scared that, like, my payment's not going to work, like I'm not going to have enough quarters, or, like, my card's not going to work. I don't even know if that's still how you pay for those things. I've heard that you can just drive through and they'll just snap a picture of your license plate and then bill you later, but that still feels illegal to me. And I, I, it just feels like I, I just can't get into that. And plus, Google Maps has a billion other options that you can try that are just as good. So I'll just, I'll just take one of those, right? It's a weird, again, irrational fear. I understand. I've heard that toll roads can sometimes be like way faster. Um, sometimes they could be like really scenic. Um, but if you don't care about those things, then you don't need toll roads. So that's kind of where I'm at. There's just other options, other options that seem viable and good. And as I thought about this, um, you probably saw the title of our sermon today, Freedom's Toll. No, this is not a jump on Veterans Day. Um, this is me thinking that this is kind of the same mentality that we have in our faith. We avoid the toll of the better road when there are a million other seemingly viable options. It's getting easier and easier because we live in a land of so many promising options, or at least that's what they say they are, promising options. And I think that's the struggle for believers and non-believers alike because we are constantly in contention with our faith with everything else out there that puts us in, this, in the position of asking this question, is Jesus truly better than any of these other ways? Is he really that much better? Some of you are here today and you probably don't believe you probably don't really believe, and so you've never confessed your sin and repented to the Lord and asked Jesus into your life. You've never made the decision to live for him because, honestly, you don't believe his way is the right way. You don't believe he is the one God. You just don't believe that his way is the right and best and, and, and most blessed way. You don't believe it. And, honestly, there's nothing that I could say or do for you to, to convince you. You need to let the Lord give, you need to give the Lord a chance to, uh, to prove himself to you in that way. Chances are he already has, uh, your eyes just haven't been opened to it yet. And maybe today would be that day for you. But then for many of us who we've known Jesus for a long time, we still are in that tough place of like, I know what the Bible says about this thing, but is, the, is what the Bible says about this thing still the best way? Like, is what the Bible says about sex still the best thing? Is what the Bible says about marriage still the, the best thing? Is what the Bible says about all of these other things that are floating out there, is his way really the best way? And it is so easy for Christians to just get pitted in their own head 
convincing themselves that Jesus, even though it's in the scriptures, even though we've seen it play out in other people's lives in a good way, it's still just, it's too costly, and I don't really know if it's worth it. And so today, we have another sermon, a very similar sermon to the ones that you've heard in the past, and it's basically this. Following Jesus requires cost, and it's worth every bit of it. Following Jesus requires cost, and it's worth every bit of it. The issue is, is you're not going to know if the road is worth it unless you pay the toll and travel it for once. You're just not going to know. There's nothing I can tell you um, um, to, to convince you of that other than that I've traveled the road too and I'm fully convinced and you're in a room full of people who can speak uh, the same. But ultimately, the decision's com- coming back to you. Is it worth it for you to endure the discomforts of righteousness and faithfulness and obedience so that you and others can know the freedom of Jesus better? That's the question. And so maybe today is your day for the Lord to just kind of lead you. And whatever that step of, a, uh, of faith and obedience has been, it's been in your mind, it's been in your heart, you've just never done anything about it. And I pray today would be the day that, that the Lord gives you everything you need to make that step. So Mark chapter 1, starting in verse 29 through 38, I want to invite Chris Mathis up, who's going to read our passage for today. Um, I don't know what page number it's in in the Black Bibles, but there are Black Bibles around you that you can use. And uh, would you please stand in the honor of reading of God's word this morning? Good morning. As soon as they left the synagogue, they went into Simon and Andrew's house with James and John. Simon's mother-in-law was lying in bed with a fever, and they told him about her at once. So he went to her, took her by the hand, and raised her up. The fever left her, and she began to serve them. When evening came, after the sun had set, they brought to him all those who were sick and demon-possessed. The whole town was assembled at the door, and he healed many who were sick with various diseases and drove out many demons. And he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. Very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he got up and went out and made his way to a deserted place, and there he was praying. Simon and his companions searched for him, and when they found him, they said, everyone is looking for you. And he said to them, let's go on to the neighboring villages so that I may preach there too. This is why I've come. Awesome. Thank you, Chris. You can have a seat. Thank you. So we, uh, um, as I said, this is going to be a similar sermon. We're going to address uh, some things today that um, they are costs um, of following Christ. They're realities of, of things we need to weigh and measure as we step in obedience uh, to the Lord. Um, it might seem vague at the start, and that's true, right? How did we get that out of this passage? And uh, to do that, we're going to have to take kind of a next level view down, right, to view it from a little higher. It's something that I don't always do. It's not always the style of preaching I do, but uh, it's something that's very fitting today. Um, these aren't the big hang-ups that we're going to acknowledge today. You know, the big hang-ups of, of sex and money and arrogance and all of these things that everybody knows are enemies to spiritual growth. Um, and yet, at the same time, these are real things that, that we need to wrestle with as we consider our pursuit of Jesus. And the first uh, that we see in the first couple of verses is that of a familial disruption, I'm calling it. If you're going to follow Jesus and follow him fully, um, you can expect that this is going to upset, upset your family dynamic to a degree. 
right? And, and looking at verse 29, this is what we see. It says, as soon as they left the synagogue, so it must have been Sabbath, they went into Simon and Andrew's house with James and John. Simon's mother-in-law was lying in bed with a fever, and they told him about her at once. And so he went to her. He took her by the hand and raised her up, and the fever left her, and she began to serve them. What we have here is just another clear display of Jesus' power, similar to that what we saw last week. Last week, we looked at how Jesus muzzled the demon inside of this man and then cast the demon out, and he displayed his power over the depths of spiritual darkness. And now we see him muzzle a sickness inside of Simon, uh, who is also Peter, inside of Simon's mother-in-law. The language suggests that she's possibly deathly ill, um, that she's pretty seriously sick, and yet Jesus comes in and he heals her. It's something that we still believe he can do today, right? We still pray for healing over people. We still see it at times. Though nobody is a healer, Jesus is the healer, and sometimes in his sovereign will, he, he will heal people of their illnesses, It's an amazing thing. And so we see his power over spiritual darkness. We see his power over physical ailment. But what I also see, if you take a step out, is I see two sets of brothers. I see a mother-in-law, which also means that there must be a wife involved somewhere. Right? Andrew and Simon, who is Peter, they are brothers. Andrew was a follower of John the Baptist, and then he made the conversion to follow Jesus Christ, and he grabbed his brother and said, you got to come with me. And so Peter and Andrew, they're brothers, and they follow after Jesus. And then you have James and John, who we already looked at in Mark chapter 1. They're brothers as well. Uh, They were fishermen by trade, and they worked for their father Zebedee, and they left the family business and left their father, left the boat immediately, and followed after after Jesus. I see Simon's mother-in-law right, who's sick, um, her home. She was a hospitable person who, who housed the ministry of Jesus often. And for Simon to have a mother-in-law meant he probably had a wife. Some scholars think that his wife was already deceased by this point. Other, other, fact, uh, other places of church tradition su- suggest the opposite, that she was a vibrant part of Peter's life and ministry and, and calling through the days of the early church. It's interesting, isn't it? I think sometimes we forget that all of these apostles, they had families. Maybe not wives and children for all of them. Though some may argue that some of them had more wives and children than we think. But certainly parents, siblings, grandparents, some of them their careers directly lined out for them uh, according to their family tradition and trade. Uh, Their family ties often much deeper and stronger across generations, uh, which is true for people of the collective uh, uh, culture, right? We're individualistic. Um, They were from a collective culture where it wasn't uncommon uh, uh, for for multiple generations, three to four generations, to live within the same uh, zone, if not the same home, right? They were very connected across generations. The family unit, such a, uh, such a strong factor for them, very different than our individualistic culture, right? Where people freely move hundreds of miles away, uh, away from, from their families all of a sudden, where nursing homes can't keep up with the demand. It's a very different culture. Now, to be clear, um, the biblical mandate for, for family is, is present. Like, we are called in the Scripture to, to have a radical love and dedication for our family. So despite the familiar disruption we're talking about, please take note, the Scriptures uphold the family as, as one of God's primary tools and gifts for human flourishing. And, and to prove that, all you have to do is look where there are the deepest pockets of hate and confusion and hurt 
right? You think about the prison system. You think about uh, the world of addictions. You think about the polarizing world of sexual and gender identity issues. And nine times out of ten, you can trace all this stuff back to a breakdown of the family. Dad's gone. Mom's sick. Something, right? Nine times out of ten. Now, people don't like that messaging, but it's, it's true. And it goes even as far as to say, uh, you know, Paul says to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 8, he says, but if anyone does not provide for his own family, especially for his own household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. So yes, family is God's gift and tool for human flourishing. And we see it when people flourish because of it, and we also see it when that unit is not there and it's not working. And we are charged to guard it and to keep it in such a way that reflects our own relationship with Jesus Christ. Even so, there are times when our faith will cause familial disruption. It's going to happen. Now, as a vocational minister, uh, I've felt this directly. Uh, I think most people who give their lives to a vocational ministry, they feel it on a unique level, and their families kind of have to bear that with them to a degree. So I'm sorry for my many family members who are here today who have had to bear this with me and my family. For many of you, you were missionaries or you were, you know, called to some radical place of service. And so you've had to deal with some significant uh, uh, cost and toll when it comes to your families to heed the call, to heed the call that God has placed on your life. But even on a smaller scale, sometimes parents just need to make decisions that are not pleasing to their children. And it can cause a serious riff for a while. But if it's the way that God's calling you, then it's worth the riff. When family members disagree on matters of essential truth, and so the relationship is frayed, and honestly, if you don't back off a truth, it'll always stay frayed. Are you okay with that? Can you navigate another Thanksgiving meal with, with those frayed relationships? When schedules and calendars and obligations and priorities need seriously rearranged because the family's not breeding uh, a faithfulness, it's breeding arrogance and chaos and disruption, So we peek into this room where we see these family connections of these people who have made the decision to follow after Jesus, and they've automatically made the decision to give up some of these, uh, to allow some of these family disruptions to follow Jesus at a radical level. And the question is to us, is following Jesus and obedience to Jesus worth a little familial disruption? Is it worth the rescheduling? Is it worth the reprioritizing? Is it worth saying no every once in a while? Think about your own household and your family today especially. What adjustment or disruption may God be calling you and your family to? What priority shift needs to happen? What next level obedience has God called you to? But just so you know, and this is on the positive side, what I have found is that for families, including my own, who actually step into these places, trusting the Lord through them, being okay with some of the disruption, Maybe not immediately, but over time, what I have found and what I've seen in other families is God does not, uh, that the family doesn't become more frail. It becomes more fortified in the Lord. And I think we see this example in Simon Peter, right? Uh, Simon Peter, assuming he he did have a wife, there was this uh, third century uh, Greek historian by the name of Eusebius. He was a Greek historian of Christianity who actually says that Peter's wife, though unnamed, was a faithful follower of Christ who was actually crucified right before Peter was. Peter watched his bride be crucified in the name of Christ, and his last words to her were, remember the Lord. That's pretty remarkable, isn't it? 
Now, if this is true, then whatever the toll was that Peter and his wife agreed upon whenever he was asked to follow Jesus, whatever that cost was, certainly the the cost of their own lives, it fortified their faith together to radical lengths. And when we get to heaven, when when we ask them, was it worth it, what do you think they're going to say? Of course. So that's the first thing is familial disruption. We see that in this episode. I was talking to this, uh, Kenzie about this, and she referred to kind of each separate passage as, as these episodes. So that's what I'm calling them. I like that. And so that was the first episode. The second uh, we see in verse 32, and this is the cost of what I'm just going to say, vulnerability. This is the cost of vulnerability. And so look with me at verse 32. When evening came after the sun had set, they brought to him all those who were sick and demon-possessed. The whole town was assembled at the door, and he healed many who were sick with various diseases and drove out many demons. And he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. Now, to be clear, the demons were not permitted to speak by Jesus because the more they talked about Jesus, the more people would accidentally associate Jesus with the demons. And this is something that we actually see in Mark uh, chapter 3 in verse 22. The scribes accuse Jesus, saying, he is possessed by Beelzebub, and he drives out demons by the ruler of demons. And so Jesus has to correct that, and he uses it as a teaching, uh, as a teaching way. So, so the reason he told the demons not to speak his name or to tell people about him was because he didn't want to be associated with that, and he wanted to spare people of that confusion. But again, taking a step out, as I, as I read these verses, what I recalled immediately in my head was a scene from uh, the show Chosen. Has anybody seen The Chosen? It's one of the strongest pictures of, of the Gospels that I've seen in you know, video form. Um, it's, it's just remarkable. It's very good. And there's this season, or sorry, there's this scene where all of the disciples are gathered by this fire. It's late at night, and Jesus, it's just kind of implied he's been at this booth in the desert just tending to people who are flocking his way, right? Tending to uh, uh, the demon-possessed, tending to people who are, who are physically um, afflicted deeply, right? Just doing his ministry, And he spends the entire day out there, and they're by the fire, and then you see Jesus start to make his way back to camp. And he's coming back to camp, and he's like walking as though completely exhausted. He's breathing heavily as if he's in pain. His clothes are tattered. He's got blood on his hands from tending to the people that he was ministering to. His body completely exhausted from all of the physical and emotional toll that he endured from providing freedom to a desperate and broken people. And he makes his way to his tent, and his mother, Mary, comes, and she tends to him, and she removes his sandals and washes his feet and wipes his face and then wishes him rest, to which he says, I'm so tired. And I love this picture of Jesus because I think maybe what we could accidentally think is that Jesus, who's God and awesome and authority, you know, just strolls back to camp and says, where are you guys at? I've been killing it all day. I'm going to bed. Good night. You know, and like have no issue uh, um, with his body, with his human limitations. That's not the case. He was worn down. And what we have is this picture of, of Jesus bearing in his body the expression of his divine love for others, which had reached its human limit. And he can't do it anymore for that day. He's got to get some rest or else he's going to physically die. It's a strong, strong image. And I think about that as I think about this. 
It's just an entire town filled with desperation, filled with demon possession, filled with physical affliction. And Jesus engages, and I think it would be right for us to understand that he engages at the expense of his own body and his own emotions and his own spirit and mind. He bore this in his human body. And for his disciples, if you read through the scriptures, those who walked closest to him, they shared in this struggle. It is a taxing thing to walk with others in their deepest hurts, right? Even if there is freedom on the backside, that doesn't immediately, immediately alleviate the, uh, the struggle that it was uh, to minister to those people in such depth. And the point is that the followers of Christ, including us, followers of Jesus, we are to be an emotionally dynamic people. In fact, There is no way to engage in the hurts and needs of others without being stretched in this way. And this is good and something that we need to allow. In Romans chapter 12, verse 15, it says, Rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those who mourn. It's emotional, being emotionally dynamic. Matthew chapter 22, verse 33, Jesus says, Love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your mind. That is your full person, heart, soul, mind, emotions, abilities, everything that you are, your entire being. And you think about the emotional terms that we're called to in the scriptures, affection, gladness, grief, joy, care, empathy, love, anger. All of them have their place and can be strong tools for for pursuing Jesus. They all must be tempered, of course, by the Holy Spirit and by the attitude of Christ, but they are all part of following Christ and helping others do the same. And so you might be asking, how, how is being emotionally dynamic a cost of following Christ? Well, it's because many people, including me, have an extreme aversion to any sign of vulnerability and weakness. We have an extreme aversion to it. For many people, it's because they've just been so hardened by just a tough life that they just, softness is, does not come easy to them. For other people, they've, you know, they've tried being vulnerable and they've been hurt and so now they got to build up that shell. Um, men, we've mistaken masculinity to mean hunting and muscles and sports and 70-hour work weeks. And, of course, you know, traffic conversations. This is a, a huge uh, uh, misunderstanding. Sure, if you like those things, whatever, that's fine. But love, it requires empathy and it requires affection and it requires a soft heart. Repentance requires brokenness. That's an emotional term. Worship requires untethered joy and awe. Obedience requires humility, surrender, lowliness. How often do we miss out on the riches of faith simply because we prefer the safety of our shell? Keeping everything at surface level. We've got to let the Lord break these things down. We've got to let the Lord just shatter that shell that we've condensed ourselves to. The freedom that he's going to bring out of your life through that is going to be remarkable, but it's going to stretch you because the deeper we get in obedience and in love and in worship and in empathy and compassion, the more it's going to draw on your entire person, heart, soul, mind, and strength. And we've got to embrace it and we've got to trust him through it and we've got to find freedom in it. The third cost um, that I want to identify is just simply that of daily devotion. 
And for those of you who have been reading your Bible in the mornings, you know, for the last 45 years, this will mean nothing to you. For the rest of us, right, for the other 99% of this room, this is something that we could probably work on. There's cost to it, though, right? And so we see this in the example of Jesus Christ, uh, starting in verse 35. It says, very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he got up, went out, and made his way to a deserted place. And there he was praying. Simon and his companions searched for him, and when they found him, they said, everyone is looking for you. And he said to them, let's go on to the neighboring villages so that I may preach there too. This is why I have come. And I love this because it's modeled by Jesus, who is God. Jesus is God, though the human version, he is, he is God. And though he was God, he still needed sourced in his humanity by the Father, according to his human limitations. He needed unhindered, undistracted time in the attention and warmth of his father. And so he wakes up early and he puts everything else and everyone else aside for a bit, which is hugely important, by the way. He puts it all aside. People are looking for him and they can't find him, and that's intentional. And he prays. And he prays. And when he's done, he essentially gets up and tells his disciple, hey, let's get going. We got more to do. Now, most people that I know, including myself, after one day, one day of just radical ministry like that, the last thing we want to do is get up early the next morning, pray, get what we need, and then jump right back into it, right? But that's what the Lord does. He says, let's do it again, and let's do it again, and let's do it again, and let's do it again, because this is what it takes. This is what it takes to give people freedom. It is perpetual, it is resilient, and it is ongoing. And I cannot tell you all how vitally important this part is for the Christian walk. If you're here and you're a believer in Jesus Christ, this is step one and it is life-changing. Is the daily devotion. What Jesus models here is, is a dis discipline of relationship with Jesus that will determine whether you are a pillar of, of spiritual strength and vitality or, or a shallow puddle of insecure, overcautious, trampled, formless faith. This will determine the difference. People have called it quiet time. People have called it daily devotion. A friend of mine called it his daily portion. I love that. Uh, Jesus in Java, less of a fan of that. Coffee in Christ, that's even worse. But less about what you call it. You've got to understand this is not just a fad for coffee shop Christians. This is a timeless discipline where God's people join their hearts with God's directly through prayer and scripture. And Jesus himself modeled this for us. And what, was, what were the ingredients? It was morning, right? It was the first part of his day, and it was isolation. It was isolation. And it was essential for his human strength and resilience. It was his constant alignment and focus on the heart and will of God. It was the filling of, of any cracks that may have resided when Jesus gave up his place in heaven to become human on our behalf. And I'll go ahead and share this about my own personal life. Over the last four or five years, I mean, before four or five years ago, I hated mornings. Couldn't stand it. And now, over the last four or five years, for a very, like, selfish reason, like, I wanted to get better at golf, and so I started waking up more earlier so that I could play more later, right, without infringing on my ministry and on my family. So it didn't even start with the right attitude, and yet over the last four or five years, I've become a morning person, right? I'm up at 5 or 5.30 every morning, and, and it has been no doubt the most enriching part of my spiritual life that I've ever experienced in my adult years. 
Now, I'm not saying that because everybody has the option to be a morning person. I'm just saying for me, that has been remarkable. My family, my marriage, my health, my walk with the Lord most of all, they have been strengthened by this shift across the board. How many other things in life can you say has comprehensive benefits across the board? There's nothing. But for me, this has been one of those things. I carry less regret through the day of the things I didn't get to, right? It's just been that meaningful to me. And I think scripturally there is something unique about the newness of the mornings. The mornings provide something for people in their connection with the Lord. And I can't fully articulate it, but it's everywhere in the scriptures. Lamentations chapter 3, verses 22 and 23. Because of the Lord's faithful love, we do not perish, for his mercies never end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Psalm 5, verse 3. In the morning, Lord, you hear my voice. In the morning, I plead my case to you and watch expectantly. Psalm 30, verse 5, weeping may stay overnight, but there's joy in the morning. 59, 16, but I will sing of your strength and will joyfully proclaim your faithful love in the morning. 88, 13, but I call to you for help, Lord. In the morning, my prayer meets you. It's there. Years ago, I'd be the guy saying, well, you can pray at night too. It doesn't have to be in the morning. You can do your quiet time later, and that's absolutely true. You can do it all later. That's totally fine. I wasn't using it as an excuse to do my quiet time later, just so you know. I was using it as an excuse to not do it at all, right, to, to, to hide the guilt of just never doing it. And, of course, people work shift work. People have factors and schedules that get in the way of this. But even deeper than the morning hours, what we have here is a principle It's less about having your time in the morning, and it's more about having your time with God first. The morning is the first part of your day. It's the principle of first. In Proverbs chapter 3, verses 9 and 10, honor the Lord with your possessions and with the first produce of your entire harvest. Then your barns will be completely filled and your vats will overflow with new wine. Of course, Matthew chapter 6, verse 33, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all of these things will be provided for you. Everything you need for living and for faithful living uh, to the Lord, it will be given to you. God wants your first, and he wants your best. That's the idea. And we embrace this principle with our money, with our affections, with our priorities, and I believe it applies to the waking hours of our day as well. I'm fully convinced of this. Whether your day starts at 5 a.m. or 5 p.m., The first part of your waking day, may it be the Lord's, and may you experience the peace and and richness and freedom that comes from that. What would it look like for you to re-up your devotion to the Lord and give him the best part of yourself, the first part of yourself? What would you have to do in your home with your children, with your wife? How, How could you work that out so that it starts such a, uh, this rich heritage of, of just newness and firstness in your home? Would it be worth it? And again, you'll just have to try it out and let me know. I'm going to go ahead and say it's going to be worth it for you. But this is something that you'll only know if you try it. Now, I read the Bible every day. Um, It's called Every Day with Jesus. And it is, I don't read it every day, by the way. Even though I'm talking about all this stuff about, you know, morning, sometimes I miss it. Big surprise, right? Um, So it's a Bible called Every Day with Jesus. um, And it's broken down, uh, the entire Bible is broken down to to read the whole Bible in a year. And then each day it comes with this devotion uh, from the works of the late Selwyn Hughes, who is this Welsh minister um, who's just got a great brain, or had a great brain, because he's late, right? Um, 
he, he's, he's not alive anymore, right? So, but he had a great theological brain, a great way of talking, and one of his devotions, he said this, God has given us infinite resources through prayer and the reading of the scriptures, and there are, they are ours for the asking and the taking. The quiet time creates an island of quiet within us, and that becomes the atmosphere of the day. Now, I think that is perfectly true. That your time with the Lord in the first part of your day can focus your heart to him in the rest of the day. That the atmosphere of your brain, of your mind, of your heart can already be seasoned and cultured to, to the Lord through the rest of your day if we give him that first part. I think it's true and I think it's real and available to us. And by the way, we've been using these words freedom and peace, right? And I've talked about the freedom that comes from this just in a general sense, it just makes me wonder how, how many of us would actually use these words, right? Freedom and peace. How many times have you thought about those words and used those words as you describe your relationship with Jesus Christ? Is freedom and peace something that you would say about your relationship with Jesus Christ? Notice I didn't say easy. I didn't say comfortable. I didn't say perfect. I said freedom and peace. It's counterintuitive. Freedom and peace don't come from what is easy and comfortable. They come through loss, through weakness, through humility, through sacrifice, through cost. The more you give up for the Lord, the more you find in the Lord. Freedom and peace can only be found in, in exerting yourself and getting over yourself and sacrificing yourself for the better things. And what I've found in my own life and, and in other people's lives that the most unsettled we are in our faith usually means that we are being the least sacrificial. The most unsettled you are in your faith, it usually means that you are the least sac sacrificial. And in Jesus... I mean, he was given strength to do what, what God called him to do, but it required God to be the first of his devotion. It required early mornings and praying through the day. His devotion to the Lord was second to none. It was just second to none. The apostles, they were stretched in their whole person though, uh, through, through what they saw and what they witnessed and what they partook in the ministry of Jesus. I mean, they would endure the greatest acts of healing and relief against the unrelenting ways of darkness and evil. For every one person that Jesus would heal, two more would get in the line with some gross, infectious thing that they needed spared of. That's going to take a toll. Yes, freedom is wonderful to see, but it doesn't immediate, immediately alleviate the mind from seeing so much darkness. And they were forced into positions where they had to trust Jesus through, through upsetting their family dynamics and structures and commitments. These are tolls. These are things that we must weigh and consider as we, as we serve Christ. But when we step into these places of obedience, these places, these tolls, these costs, they become portals for Christ to work, to work through you. And in this way, cost is a spiritual amplifier. It beefs up your faith. It, it, embold, it emboldens your confidence in the Lord and, and draws you into deeper places of obedience and trust in him. And I wonder today, I mean, maybe you're here and you're just this unbelieving skeptic. You came in here because your girlfriend asked you to or something, I don't know. Like, you, you, you don't really care about any of this stuff, but this is resonating with you because peace and freedom are things that you don't have. You're chasing it, you're looking for it, you don't have it. It might even be in your physical body. 
And it might certainly be something in your heart and in your mind and in your emotions. You don't have freedom and peace, and you would love for that. And I'm telling you, Jesus is the answer. And maybe you're here today, and you're this distracted believer, something that I often find myself just, just filled with, with spiritual clutter and confusion. You know Christ is the answer, but you're so locked up in your own head, you don't know what to do about it. And maybe you're here, and you're a vibrant follower of Christ, and we have many. And you're seeking the next step of faith to take. The answer to all of us is the same. We've got to take the step. We've got to endure the cost. And we need to trust that the road of freedom and peace in the gospel of Christ is worth every bit of it. You've just got to trust that it's going to be worth it. And you can, because the road has been paved by Jesus Christ. It's been paved by his own pain and power. He endured the cost. He endured the fullest level of sacrifice. And he is now exalted in the highest places. And through our belief in him and surrender of our lives, we are able by his grace to walk the same road and to the same glorious end. So I pray today, whatever that step of obedience is for you, that today would be the day that he would break the shell, that he would break the stronghold, that he would break whatever's in the way, that you would trust him through the discomfort with the promise of knowing that it's absolutely worth it. Let's pray together. Father, we, uh, we humble ourselves to you completely today. Father, no matter where any of us are in our faith, there's something more that you want for us, always. And I don't know what that is for every single person here, but I know um, that there's a variety of, of faith statuses that we all walked into uh, today with. Many here who may not believe, some here who, who believe are just in a place of doubt and confusion, others, God, who, who might very well be just killing it in your name, and they're looking for that extra stretching place of obedience that they can be drawn to. And I pray today, whatever that step of faith is that you're calling of us, that we would allow Mark 1 to be an example of, of the freedom and the peace that can come when we give up of ourselves for the cause of Christ. So whatever that might be today, for our students, for, for our adults, for our kids, God, I pray that you would draw them in that. Um, God, if it's as simple as just re-upping in their daily devotion to you, God, that's, that is huge. That is just huge. God, if it's something new, if it's, you know, that person in here who just has never surrendered their lives to you, they never called on your name, they've never given you a chance to prove yourself to them, even though you already have through everything you've created, through, uh, through all of the common graces that you've given us all the time, they still can't see it. And I pray that you would remove the blinders today, that they would call upon your name, and that they would give you a chance to be the freedom and peace that they've been searching for their entire lives. We love you, Father. Be with us now in this time of response. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We're going to go into a, a brief time.